The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Astrology reveals insights into the greater world, its changing cycles and universal forces. Through the lens of astrology, we examine special topics and current events, investigate their meaning, and discuss solutions to personal and global problems. Welcome to Astrology, the theory of everything, with Mary Jo Weavers and Janie McCarthy. We are here to show you how astrology can be a powerful tool for self-awareness and transformation. You'll be amazed how everything is interconnected when using astrology. Now, here are your hosts, Mary Jo and Janie. Hi, how is everybody today? This is Janie McCarthy. I am with Voice America and Astrology, the Theory of Everything. Today with a very welcomed returning guest, Eric Francis. Eric is a very accomplished investigative journalist as well as astrologer, and um, I want to introduce him again today, but using his words, he is the most exquisitely chosen languager that I've uh, come across. Uh, Eric's background blends both this investigative journalist side of him, which is uh, It's very humanitarian. He's very concerned with the collective's health, mental health and physical health. And he also has such a brilliant way of expressing astrology in a very relevant way. Um, So let me um, finish his introductions with his words, because this is a very key to what uh, individuates Eric, among other astrologers, Um, morphing the investigative ethos of his reporting career with the softer, introspective journey of astrology. He has created a new genre of journalism that follows both news, celestial events, and inner movement all as one idea. Eric, welcome. Thank you. All right. I um, am very anxious to speak with you today about this dualistic situation uh, humanity finds itself in with so many exclusionary and um, inclusionary behavior patterns which are very isolating, uh, work very much against creating any kind of peacefulness or union across our humanity. So I want to look at this, what this, this, in this separateness that's constantly thrown in our faces. Um, so first, I, I just want to quote someone by the name of Martin Carlin. Uh, he's an editor of 
Bush Flash and new and newly the truth out. I think he summarized. Oh, Buzz, Buzz Flash, Buzz Flash. Yes, yes. I'm sorry if I uh, misspoke that. Yes, it's pretty. It's he, a yeah, people would recognize it. And now he's editor of Truth Out, also Truth Out as well. But this. Yeah. This was right on the money. This came out in December, December 7th of 2015. He says, given that violence, and by the way, this is um, ragefully expressive. I think that's what's being provoked in humanity today collectively. He says, given that violence and genocide were the basis of the colonization of what is now the United States, it should be no surprise that hate and brutality lie just under the surface of the so-called civil white society. This country's second original sin, the horrifying institution of slavery, is also built into the foundation of white supremacy on which the United States was built. He goes on to say, the tension between the myth that the United States was created to emancipate all people and its exclusionary intent still exists today by leaders who oppose the inclusion of non-whites and sometimes even non-Christians in this supposed participatory democracy. When I read that, Eric, it re-aggravated something very old in me. Mm -hmm. Give me your thoughts, your observations of where humanity is now when it comes to the use of exclusionary, inclusionary behaviors. So humanity is pretty diverse and it's pretty big. There's lots of countries and tribes. We might be wise just to talk about something we know about, which is the United States. Uh, with cultural references, people would recognize. But let's take advertising as an example, as something that builds up the sensation of exclusion so that you can be then included because you have the right car, the right deodorant, the right blue jeans, the right whatever it might be. Um, And so these injuries are perpetuated by people with an agenda. And that does include um, commerce often, right? Because what, what we now sell is inclusion, you just if you watch TV ads and, and you watch them like a sociologist, um, I know it's tempting to go for the popcorn. But if you watch them, <laughs> if you stay put, <laughs> the volume goes up. <laughs> put in your earplugs and watch them as a sociologist. You'll see that what most ads are selling is you being more acceptable, absolutely, and feeling better about yourself. Y- yeah, and and so that's. Filling in a fake, well, that's a kind of a fraudulent way to fill in a void that can only be filled in by us. Yes. As long as we have that void, then we can't, we're susceptible to those kind of of pitches and and to a lot worse, I would say. So, right. So, so, yeah, go ahead. Please continue. So, whatever's going on in in the culture ultimately. Each individual person is presented with the same basic challenge, which is self-acceptance. 
that's the only that's what we need it's i think what we want and it's the only inoculation against all of these things that are designed to kind of drag us around and and manipulate us into other agendas by exploiting the lack of self-acceptance that we're taught to have going back to our family experiences oh and for at least 2000 years this uh st- maybe not totally out of experience thing experiencing the Piscean Age, I think we're still in the remnants. Self-acceptance, I think, is born, excuse me, not having self-acceptance, I think, is born out of a very consistent message of not enoughness. Whether we were victims suffering and undeserving of whatever it was we were not to share in, or we were being punished for some sins that we'd created who knows when and how. Well, baptism emphasizes the concept of original sin rather than removing it. Do we really need to project that onto an infant? (laughs) I mean, talk about a business model. Yes, so, before the child is out of the womb, yeah. uh, the prenatal commercials are making sure that this mother is already on that path and transmitting it to her child. Well, and the, and the, and the kid in the womb can hear. Hearing is the first sense that develops. And though we don't necessarily have direct recollection of this, though it could probably be recalled through some kind of um, recall method... But um, the experience, the emotional experience of the mom is being conveyed right to the child physically. The kid, and the kid is floating in water in the middle of mom's body. Yeah, and that water is juiced with hormones, it's, her hormones. Yes. These, these ancient emotional um, encoded Vectors. messages. Yeah, yeah yep. and they come up through us with such passion. Yes. Particularly during these heightened times. Well, yeah. I mean, I was in vivo when Kennedy was assassinated. I was a six-month-old fetus. And um, a couple of years back, I was talking to my mom about that. She became kind of a Kennedy assassination kind of uh, inquirer. Yes. And she said, well, that, you know, I asked her what her story of that day was. And she, she said, that was the day. She was, mind you, she was 23 or 22. That was the day that I realized the world was not a safe place. Wow. Look how early you got that message and needed to help other people not feel it. It's, it I, I am certain that that influenced my choices, and it certainly comes up in my natal chart, for example, describing my relationship to government but you know from a very young age i was calling the government on the phone i lived in new york city and so the adults around me were tickled that uh, that a five-year-old kid would pick up the phone i mean this is in the days before 411 existed you would dial o for operator and oh they doubled gosh. as directory assistance right wow. so I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit here now we don't even have operators anymore but um and call the city to complain about things so i had no fear and I, nor, nor did I feel insignificant for a five-year-old to call up New York City. <laughs> Think about that. Yes. So well, this came from somewhere. And, the, and I was thinking, having breakfast, contemplating the topic for this program, thinking, well, okay, so the, the early family experience is going to shape whether a person is self-accepting 
or not in different ways. Of course, you, you're always dealt a mixed hand. You get some ways where you are and some ways where you're not. But so, something gave me the, me the gumption to call up the city. And, and then I realized, okay, so I was included in important family decisions. I was aware, I was aware of things. I, I was sought, uh, my opinion was sought and I would give it if it wasn't sought. So I was on a level of verbal dialogue with, uh, with, with the authoritarian mini state, the family. Mm-hmm. And so given that I had that verbal dialogue with the miniature state, I then could convey that to the real bigger state. Mm-hmm. And then it, 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 I never thought twice about challenging corporations or, or the government on the issue of, of toxins. It, it wasn't always not scary. Sometimes it was scary, but the fear never seemed anything to bother with. It always just seemed something to brush aside and and to go forward. You're also one of the very few investigative reporters that's still scooping regularly what's going on in Japan and radioactively across the world. Well, the story's been blanked. I mean, it's it's being ignored. Yes. Who's even really you see a piece come out occasionally someplace like Truth Out. You don't see it very much on on, on the news, I mean, look, the, our, our leftist-leaning mainstream media, MSNBC, is co-owned by the manufacturer of mm-hmm. the nuclear power plant at Fukushima. Mm-hmm. Yeah. GE is a partner in MSNBC. So what do you, you're not going to find out much about the GE Mark III nuclear power plant and its defects. Of course not. And that brings us full cycle to advertising and who's controlling the messages and to whom. Right. And I think that the uh, obviously you have to look at the relationship between the advertising and the content. And it, this takes more consciousness than most people want to bring to flipping on the television set, though. But, uh, you, you know, it's, it's kind of like a chef going out to dinner. That's like me watching the news It's like, you know, a chef going out to dinner and they can, you know, you take one bite of it and you can tell all the ingredients in the in the sauce. And I think it's much more fulfilling to watch the news having some concept of what goes into it and the relationship between the advertising and 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 the content and it's frightening because you realize there's all if you figure that out there must be all manner of hidden agendas operating so let's stay with that um that subject uh advertising and the messages and how controlling it is about how it is we feel about ourselves what not enoughness uh, scars, uh, they're hitting to promote us to buy something, to satisfy whatever those unfulfilled needs are from without ourselves. So let's talk about through advertising's eyes. What do advertisers believe motivates humans to be so exclusionary? Or I'm trying sure so hard to be inclus- inclusionary? I'm not sure they understand. I mean, I'm not in these focus groups where the people come up with a Subaru ad. Um, and, right, so they're, I don't know exactly what they're thinking. Uh, I, I would imagine, though, that they're just noticing the exploitable voids without necessarily understanding where they come from. Oh, I've been, that I've been very misled. I thought there was a great deal of sophistication in the data analysis, just raw data. Yep. Uh, not, not theories they're coming up with, but um, actual data of usage and uh, t- 
topics, even down to individual words. Oh, I would agree with are, that completely. I'm, what I'm saying is I'm not sure it goes so far as to say uh, this cohort probably had bad relationships with their parents, but maybe it does. I mean, maybe they're looking at the latchkey kids, for example, of my generation whose parents were never home. And then they, you know, we're the Subaru people, right? Love. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru, right? So they're selling family and, and love there. Um, exactly. And, and connection and togetherness and yeah. relationships. Yes, it's a, fem, it's a feminine message. It's a yin message. Um, it, we're hungry. We're very hungry. And I'm, then there's the Jeep ads that sell the conquer the world message. But I don't know how deep their research goes. That's the thing. I, I, I don't know. I'm not saying it doesn't. Yeah. I'm saying I'm not... Uh, I'm not in on it. And there's a pretty good question about what has more influence, the TV set itself or the content of the TV set? Because the the medium itself needs to be analyzed. And I think that the Internet is currently much more powerful than television. And, and I think what the Internet is creating is a vastly fragmented sense of self and the, and the products being offered – are find yourself products. In other words, the mess, the advertising message responding to the shattering of identity by the internet is spun toward put yourself back together or you're this one thing. You, this this uh, flavoring for your bottled water will give you a sense of being. Let um I I can't a, wait a to real get, personality a real personality um go ahead go ahead yes I can't wait to get right back to this conversation okay Let's I'll be right here quick huh? absolutely hang in there we'll be right back. The Voice America Seventh Wave Channel. Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out our website at MaryJoWeavers.com. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at JanieMcCarthy.com. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Listening to Astrology, the theory of everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, 
you may send an email to astrotalkradio at icloud.com or find us on Facebook at astrotalkradio. You can email Janie McCarthy through her website, janiemccarthy.com. Now, back to the show. We're back with Eric Francis of planetwaves.net and we've been talking about a human behavior pattern that we're, we're speaking as uh, exclusionary behavior, this dualistic pattern of it being exclusionary or inclusionary. Uh, the inclusionary side of this, oh, by the way, is um, are you of my same gender? Are you of my same tribe? Are you of my family? There's a, a tribal, a very old ancient tribal um, message, I believe, as well, that comes through that inclusionary side that shows itself within the family model, particularly. So, if Eric, if we look at what's going on in the world, let's try and bring this the subject down to earth. Let's talk about refugees and immigration and the experience of homelessness. Right. Well, they're different things. Um, I mean, for example, the homeless in the United States are a manufactured phenomenon. Uh, when when psych wards were closed, from what I understand, they were um, when I, when I was a child, they were bums, right? They weren't the homeless. They were just what we called bums, and there weren't that many of them. There were just occasional people who would roam around, and then people who lived on the Bowery and so forth. And that was this is no. Not to put anyone down, that's just what the word that we used. And then in the 70s, uh, the psychiatric hospitals were closed and people were just cast out on the street, which created a whole new homeless class within our society. Then various economic downturns uh, turned people out of their homes. And of course, wealth floating to the top of the system were being pumped out of the top like they're pumping water out of the aquifer in California. Um, Pumping the wealth to the top created more people who couldn't afford to live in a home. And in addition, we've been living under neoconservatism, which is a kind of an anti-socialist ethos. So privatization in the United States, I think, the, the concept that everything should be private um, and that the public commons should be diminished has created this. And, you know, this is, a you know, the, the political motivation to, to this is not that different than any other business motivation for it because all the privatization spon- sponsors private business. So there's a business motive. And I think, again, we have a case of a unknown weakness being exploited. Now, xenophobia is an, another thing. I, I'm amazed that the candidates for president now, uh, so many of them are so openly anti-immigration. I mean, the biggest hypocrite of them all is Ted Cruz, who's an immigrant. I mean, that's hilarious. And and uh, Marco Rubio, who's the child of Cuban immigrants. Uh, well, I don't get it. So th- it is tribal. Um, television created a whole new concept of tribalism. You know, as we went beyond print, right? Print media and and language, written language is about individualism. Television and radio are about tribalism. Oh, that's interesting. Do more of that. Well, this is, 
Marshall McLuhan, in a book called Understanding Media, 1964, explained this. And the McLuhans, who are still in business doing this, the son and grandson, um, you know, present the idea that the concept of self is something that is defined unconsciously for the entire culture by the dominant media of the time. And so through the long, slow adaptation to written language, right? I mean, it was not long ago that most people were literate. Now at least most people can you know, read a paragraph. They mm-hmm. may not be able to explain it back to you, but they can read it. And th- the concept of self that evolved, you know, really since like the development of phonetic language up through the G- Gutenberg press and then beyond that into the era of, of books – created a definition of, of self. And then when radio and television emerged on the scene, that whole definition of the private self was upended and a kind of a tribalism emerged. And, uh, and, and we lived with that for a while. N- now we have the internet. Now it's not that easy to analyze the internet. It's a very complicated thing to get a grasp on because it is so elusive and so multifaceted. But my, my sense is that it is appealing to a sense of self, but it's redefining self in a very short form, shallow way, which feels frail in the world. And I, I think that it is probable that digital natives struggle to participate in the world because the sense of self they have is so fragile and so yeah. you hear, quote unquote, millennials talking a lot about, you know, not being able to be included, not being able to find jobs, which is a form of a, of a tribe, um, at the same time, not acknowledging what this digital nativeness did to sense of self. What, 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 is, the, what is the self? I mean, if, if, if one were a novelist, how would you kind of portray the inner life of a person who grew up? on the internet to have it be kind of an accurate reflection of that. Um, since I'm not one of those people, I can only speculate based on what I've heard and, and my own experience. Um, but that I think it's a fra- fragile and very mutable sense of self without much to anchor it in. I think that's a very accurate perception of who I would call the millennials. You were talking about, uh, the medium is the message earlier. The environment, the entire environment, uh, communicative environment on all platforms that they have been raised in has morphed, I like that word that you use, has morphed what it is that's being received in terms of message. It's uh, the experiential piece is sadly discounted with pure machine-to-machine connectedness, uh, the fragility. That's where I feel the fragility is experienced. And yet it's this brand new kind of connectedness of humanity that we have never known the likes of. It's, uh, it's captivating. Uh, it's yeah. addictive. It's all the reasons why it's so popular and and uh, such a part of changing, actually translating, re-expressing re, uh, what it is that's coming through to us. And if what's coming through to us as a collective is this 
this nonstop behavior of of preferring to exclude than include, where does that take us? Well, we're confronted with self-acceptance again. I mean, right. if, you, if you're self-accepting, you can pretty much be included anywhere you want to be. And I think that may be the kind of thing that unravels the puzzle, is getting a gri- grip on self-acceptance and, and what that's about, and that will affect every aspect of life, from how you feel, walking around and doing your thing to your interpersonal relationships to your family relationships to what you do professionally your involvement with your company your and your your sense of standing with the political community all of the above are mediated i think by one's inner self acceptance so i think no matter what happens on the cultural level on the individual level there's always that inner confrontation that's necessary and there can be walls put up. It can be made taboo to know yourself. It can be made taboo to accept yourself. It, the, the, the sensation, the feeling, the experience of completion can be made taboo because after all, that takes you out of the game on the typical uh, romantic drama. If, if, mm-hmm. you are, if you're not automatically projecting all your femaleness onto women and all your maleness onto men – uh, that's a game changer. You're a different person. You're, you're going to want to relate differently. You're not going to be able if, – if you're a man who's accepted your feminine side, you're not going to be able to be with a woman who only projects her masculine side. Right. Basically. Well, you're looking for, for authenticity on every lender, on every level, including how the, that gender gets expressed. True. true. And, that's, and the thing with authenticity is that it's become a byword. Um, and it, it, I think it's important to break that down to, yes, into, its com- into its component parts. Um, and I think that sometimes w- when someone, I can speak from experience, um, makes contact with something real, the initial feeling can be that this is inauthentic. Discovering that one is an artist. You, you, you plunge into art one night and you realize, wow, I'm an artist. But the next morning, that can feel inauthentic. And so there's a, a kind of a fragile period of transition where we have to build confidence in the new discovery, the newly discovered sense of, of being uh, that needs practice. And right. you know, how long before you can go to a party and someone says, well, what do you do? And you say, I'm an artist, rather than someone who slings coffee at Starbucks you know, eight hours a day, then you go home and are an artist. What do you, what do you say? And when do you drop the, but I'm an artist, but I work at Starbucks. And finally you just say, I'm an artist, I'm a painter, whatever that thing might be for you. Well, our, our self perceptions drive everything. And if they're not to our liking or unconscious or projected on others, then the world's a horrible place and all those people are the horrible people that make up that horrible place. So the whole consciousness movement, whether you get there through astrology, psychology, meditation, Buddhism, wherever, whatever path you are on, as the reality of one situation sets in and we become better observers of ourselves, we catch ourselves in this right action 
And that's what starts to, when we're conscious, that's what starts to get chosen, therefore replicated, honed, and embodied as our new way of being, us, a better way, a higher version of ourselves. Well, it takes guts, too, because if you're, if you're going to pick someone for a boyfriend who your friends might not approve of or your family might not approve of, that takes courage. And, and if all your friends are working uh, office jobs they complain about and you're about to quit yours, th- that involves violating a tribal standard. Um, and so there's a courage factor involved. Yes. And it, yes. can be me- it can be messy, but it's not that messy. It's, you know, it's not a drone strike on your neighborhood. That's messy. <laughs> but, in, and, you know, one's in inner psychology can be a real quest. I mean, there, you know, it, y- there's an adventure involved. And c- the main thing you need is courage, in my opinion, yes. I mean, which means coming from the heart, courage from the heart. And so come from the heart and be brave because you'll have, you'll have a need for your bravery. You will definitely have a need for your bravery. It's not Every- just a concept. Every day and every minute. And um, I'd love to speak this. Uh, I'd like to speak a little bit of astrology, Eric, when we come back from our break. I want to go into uh, the energies that we can find, we can be informed through to ride this um, need for courage. Out, out in a way that's done with right action, out in a way that's Aquarian, that's, that's fair-handed, fair-minded, fairly um, allowed, all of those good things. So you have to leave a lot of room for error. Yes, it's that. There well, has to be a trial. Will. And, well, yes, which is the ability to make decisions. Yes. Though, you know, for example, you, you might do things on the way to, you know, your, your vision might have to do things that don't seem fair. You might be a person who's not really that competitive, but suddenly you find yourself in a situation where you, it's either compete or give up some accomplishment or c- compete or give up uh, your ethics. Right. So it's, see, so it's, it's a new behavior being born, and uh, it needs to take its time. It needs to come up with, with, a, what, with whatever speed and persistence um, it, it's, it's birthing itself. Yes, with all the twists and turns involved and uh, a good bit of reality checking. Sure thing. Okay, again, we'll be back right away. Just stay with us. Thank you, Eric. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at JanieMcCarthy.com. 
Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out our website at MaryJoWeavers.com. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. Listening to Astrology, the Theory of Everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, you may send an email to AstroTalkRadio at iCloud.com or find us on Facebook at AstroTalkRadio. You can email Janie McCarthy through her website, JanieMcCarthy.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back. This is Astrology, the Theory of Everything with Janie McCarthy and our guest today is Eric from planetwaves.net, Eric Francis, and uh, I was going to ask Eric to go into the astrology of this um, human uh, behavior pattern of exclusion, inclusion, and the two uh, symbols, astrological symbols I'd love him to speak to are Eris as well as Chiron. Mm-hmm. Please. Absolutely. So, um, of okay. So, for those not familiar with astronomical discoveries, um, since the seventies, there have been a lot of planets discovered orbiting our sun. So, both Eris and Chiron are relatively new discoveries, but they're also in our solar system, um, and so they're part of our astrology. If we want them, if we invite them in to be part of our astrology. And the first of these discoveries was Chiron. It was discovered in 1977. And it was an, uh, a, a new kind of planet. It was an asteroid not in any known asteroid belt. And um, it, it had a, has a really strange orbit of a type that had never been seen before. And... Um, Recalled, it was named by its discoverer after a nearly forgotten myth of the centaurs and the wise centaur Chiron. And I believe even before the discoverer Charles Charles Coal uh, had named Chiron, he said this thing is a maverick, and the word maverick became uh, the first keyword for Chiron. And maverick was a, a rancher who refused to brattle, brand his cattle because it was cruel to brand his cattle. So the un- unbranded cattle were those of Mr. Maverick. And so that's how the word Maverick became, as uh, far as I understand it, the-, the word to describe someone who does their own thing. Cool. So Charlie Koal said, this thing is a Maverick. And we had our first keyword for Chiron. And the reason he said that is because it was, it didn't fit any known category. It was all in its all on its own. It was an asteroid in its own orbit, but actually physically was a ginormous comet, 160 to 180 kilometers. That's enormous for a comet body, comet 
nucleus um, and few other things that made it distinguished. So he named it after Chiron, who was the first centaur of Greek mythology. So we've got this thing named after a, a demigod, basically, an immortal, born of one mortal parent and one immortal parent. Um, and it, when when the early Chiron researchers started researching Chiron, what they found out is that this maverick thing um, is often where people stand out and where they're distinct from the tribe, where they're willing to do, do something different. Uh, where this shows up in Chiron's mythology is that Chiron was orphaned. Um, he he was the child of Kronos and Philyria. Philyria was a nymph, and Kronos uh, was Kronos, and he uh, was uh, doing Philyria. And then his wife appears, Kronos' wife, so he turns himself into a horse to disguise himself, and uh, and so Chiron is born half horse, half human. And so you can imagine that for someone born half horse, half human, he's not really going to be that well accepted. He's different than everyone, but he's still one of the gods. He's Im- immortal. He was orphaned by both parents. No, I may be, let's see, Philyria. I may have that myth a little bit wrong, but the essence of it is, is the same, where you get a hybrid between a, a person and, and a human in the form of a immortal god and both of his parents orphaned him. Uh, his mother turned herself into a tree, uh, and Kronos was not interested. So Apollo ends up with Chiron and raises Chiron uh, and teaches him all of the secrets, teaches him everything, basically. Chiron emerges as a teacher, as a mentor, uh, such that he even taught medicine to the god of medicine. Asclepius learns medicine from Chiron, hmm. who learned it from Apollo. So he ends up he's he's weird and he's different, but he ends up being the medical teacher of the gods, and then the the teacher the, he he basically mentored a generation of, of heroes from the classical Greek era. He had Jason, Heracles were his students, two important ones in particular, hmm. um, and so he's uh, now he's turned to being different into a form of power. And so the theme of Chiron is how you use that injury, whether it's some injury of exclusion uh, or a spiritual injury, even a physical injury, into a concentration of power. Let's say you you get sick as a child and they're paying a lot of attention to Mm -hmm. you in a certain way and you start to analyze your medical care. Uh, I mean, one example from my own life is I was diagnosed with celiac in 1965. My God. And so there was a, I was sick up to that point, you know, the probably six, eight months up to that point, as soon as they started feeding the kid wheat, I was getting sick. And so I got special treatment for being sick. (laughs) And then a lot of attention placed on food and what I couldn't, could and could not eat. And so that focused me on the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to be a pretty good chef. And when I applied to the Culinary Institute of America, my essay, which I wish I could find this thing, I would frame it. It's, it's here somewhere. It's in, it's some, it's in some <laughs> one of these file drawers somewhere. Recipe for a chef, where I said, okay, start with one kid with a nutritional disorder and then add a mother and grandmother who were interested in teaching him. And so, yes. and in the end, you get a chef yes. out of that. And so that's an example of a power wound. I was sick. But it, I turn that being sick into a form of power, and uh, and and then 
um, claimed it. It, it, it acts completely as a positive for me. And, and, mm-hmm. and look, in today's nutritional world, the fact that I am banned from eating gluten in any form saves me from fast food, from anything that comes through the deep fryer, from all kinds of processed crap. And then uh, in the end, I benefit from it. This is Chiron at work. This is the art. This is the process. And so the, the, the thing you do with Chiron, at least that I do with Chiron in, in kind of teaching my clients about how to claim their injuries as points of empowerment and not in a conceptual sense either, but help them go through their biography and see the ways in which they have done it already, you see. Uh, it's great. It's a beautiful thing. And everyone has this in some form in their life. And, and Eric – do you believe that they exhibit it? Do you believe that they can see it in themselves when it's characterized as whatever it is you heal in others, you're trying to learn to heal in yourself? That the expertise comes through the doing, through the experience? Well, that's a very Chiron thought, is the, the, the direct experience is the teacher. And I, I recognize mm-hmm. a number of philosophies put down direct experience and say that we must proceed from theory to experience, but theory is a construct. I mean, experience is what actually happens, whether we like it or not, and theory is a construct. So I I think theory is helpful, but I think that mostly we learn through experience, but what I'm then doing is taking a theory and applying it to experience, saying here's a theory that says that the ways in which you feel like you were hurt, particularly as a child, are the, the, the ways in which you have get a special leg up to claim your existence because you had to concentrate power. You had to concentrate energy into that thing. So my role is to listen and find that, that thread and and say, ah, have you made the connection between having celiac as a child and so much emphasis being put on food and the, your, your ability to feed people basically you see, and, and another connection I made in therapy was that I lived in an environment where all food was potentially a poison. And gluten is certainly a ubiquitous toxin to mm-hmm. someone with celiac. And so I was sufficiently accustomed to the concept of ubiquitous toxin mm-hmm. that I could handle writing about toxin. So these synchronicities, the... I believe the joy in recognizing putting these pieces together in our lives comes out of whatever um, tool we use to understand our lives. And if we use Eris to understand our lives, where does that take us? So Eris is newer. Uh, Eris was discovered in 2005, named in 2006, and so hasn't had a name yet for 10 years. That's pretty new for a planet, and also, in general, astrology is not that accepting. One unique thing about Chiron, and I really do mean unique, is the emphasis that was put on understanding Chiron, decoding Chiron, early on by very bright astrologers. Um, Nothing since Chiron has had quite the same benefit. And so, Eris, in many ways, remains an outcast, remains neglected. And, um, however... If you look, you can see what this is about. And, of course, it's a learning process ongoing. Um, The thing with Eris is, if we uh, borrow from the the myth, there is a forced wedding. I forget who the 
subjects of the wedding were, to which all the gods and goddesses were invited, except they did not want the goddess of discord there. So they excluded her. She did not Mm. get a wedding reception. By the way, the story is that it was Chiron's job to write out these reception, these invitations. Uh, I don't know who told Chiron not to invite Eris. I don't think it was an original idea of Chiron. Somebody must have said, and you're not sending one to Eris. But maybe. Yeah. Discord. Well, Discordia is the Roman, uh, Roman name. And and those Ah, with Robert Anton Wilson. Um, have you know heard about Discordia now? So what Eris does is in in the in the story again, which is of course a psychological kind of morality tale. She um, m- makes an apple of pure gold and inscribes it to the fairest, and she's going to disrupt the wedding mm. by appealing to the vanity of the gods and goddesses. And so this apple rolls into the, you know, you can imagine this smooth marble floor, and and there's this. Uh, soiree going on and in into the soiree appears a golden apple that says to the fairest well who's that about oh they have to have a pageant mm. so they have a pageant and they offer helen of troy as the prize which of course she's her own person and it causes a war the trojan wars were caused in the story by eris rolling the apple of discord into this room. So this wedding, this wedding, the, the, and the, the story gets us so far. Um, when you delineate Eris, you start to see things like personality chaos, the lack of understanding of who one is, the ability to complete the statement. I am, uh, you see all kinds of phenomena from the internet, including, you know, all of these multiple profiles people have. So that's one, this sort of kaleidoscopic chaos of self that is, of course, if you look at the story of media in a complete breakdown by the time 2006 rolls along, the Internet's well taken hold. Attitudes and values have changed. Self-concept has changed. And it is just basically chaos. Now, the the people who named Eris, I don't think we're thinking on that level. One of them said, well, we just look out at the world. You see that the world is in a state of discord um, but I, I took that as an internal archetype and, and grew it from there. What's also become pretty obvious is that uh, there's a subversive quality to Eris, uh, the, the, the ability to subvert the dominant paradigm, as it were. So in this age of Eris we're in right now, this mini age of Eris, of the rare and happening now conjunction of Uranus and Eris, uh, you have, for example, the political candidates getting the most press are people who have subverted the known order of their political parties. Whatever you think of Trump and Sanders, they have one thing in common, which is that they have upended the known order of their respective political parties. And nobody was expecting it. Absolutely. So, I, let me let me throw yeah. one um, quote from your website. Amanda Painter wrote about Eris, uh, described as parts of our feminine side that have been cast off or repressed. I'd call that excluded. Are creating inner chaos. I loved that, and um, I wanted to mention also uh, before we have to close the show, which is going to happen in a couple of minutes, that we did, Eric, we did a show with Zane Stein, mm-hmm. the Chiron astrologer. Uh, we did it back in September of 2015. It's on our archives. And uh, 
I couldn't agree with you more that uh, this was a discovery, the discovery of Chiron that had focus by very talented astrologers. Yeah, Zane was one of them, and Al Morrison, and Ermini Lantero, some very bright people, went at it with um, true devotion. Um, yes. We need to use that as a, as a model, but Chiron's always the exception to the rule. Now, one of the ideas of Eris, and I can read to you from Eric. How many Eric? minutes do we have? Well, I need Two to close, minutes. dear. I can't believe it. we're done. Uh, this time has been fabulous, and I wanted to give you a minute or two to tell us all what's new with you, your career, and Planet Waves before I have to sign off. Righto. Well, I've got a spring reading I'm doing on the Uranus Eris conjunction for the sun signs and rising signs. Uh, that's going to be my kind of magnum opus for the spring great um, and you know kind of con- contextualizing this for individuals as best it can be done for 12 signs which is pretty good dividing anything into 12 gives you a lot of ways to tell the story so uh, th- that is what i'm doing and the key words for uh, uranus conjunct eris that were given to me by a reader this week are breakdown breakthrough break free perfect what a wonderful! Yeah, that's exactly was my reaction. Oh, I didn't even finish writing the email, and I responded, "Yay! Finally, yes. we get it. Breakdown, breakthrough, break free. Okay, <laughs> that now that gives something to work with, and now we we build um, on that. And and this is all uh, I did this on an episode of Planet Waves FM that published in real time uh, on the 29th of of March. If you go to Planet Waves FM and look for the March 29th edition, uh, I give a much longer version of this interview, just kind of free free riffing, as I like to do on Wonderful. Planet Waves FM for hours, <laughs> two hours, a two-hour show. Well, I'll be on that as soon as this closes. Thank right. you, Eric. I, I can't thank you enough once again My for pleasure. joining us. Uh, Eric Francis of planetwaves.net and FM. Planetwaves.fm, yep. FM, and I thank all the listeners for being with us today. I'll be back in August when my show will be about the future of education. And then in September, we're going to be talking about uh, the bigger future, the, the next couple thousand years of humanity's future. So don't miss that show either. Best to all of you, and uh, may the stars be with you. Thank you for being part of the show today. Please join Janie McCarthy and Mary Jo Weavers again next month for another edition of Astrology, the Theory of Everything. You can listen to all our shows on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. May the stars be with you. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.